Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome back to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Well, Vladimir Putin seems to have been touched with a Christmas spirit in recent days, telling Russian TV that he was ready to talk peace. On the goodwill to all men front, not so much. Now, we've been there before, but the statement produced an immediate response from Ukraine, who floated the idea of an international peace conference to take place as early as February. So, however you look at it, it seems that both sides are at least feeling the pressure to look as if they're seeking a way out of the conflict. Yes, indeed. This would seem to be a very good time to look at where we are with the first anniversary of the conflict looming and to examine the prospects of the war ending in 2023. Now, to shine some light down the dark path ahead, we've got as our guest this week Mark McKinnon, the brilliant senior international correspondent for the Globe and Mail, Canada's leading newspaper. Mark has reported on Ukraine for many years and was in Kiev when the Russians rolled in earlier this year. He's extremely well-placed to answer some of the big questions with a wealth of experience and expertise behind him. And, as well as having deep knowledge of Ukraine, he's also served as the Globe and Mail's bureau chief in both Moscow and Beijing. But first, these peace murmurings, Patrick. Do you think they are any more substantial than what we've heard before? Uh, Not really. I think this is an indication of the pressure that both sides are feeling to talk the talk, even if they have no real intention of walking the walk, if you see what I mean. Uh, Putin's comments were pretty vague. They're not new. He said it before, and they were immediately followed by an accusation that it was the Ukrainians who weren't willing to to talk peace. Uh, The the Ukrainian counteroffer, which came from the foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, was for a peace conference under UN auspices, but it was contingent upon Moscow agreeing first to be put on trial for war crimes in an international court. Now, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Now, I think there's still a lot more fighting to be done yet. Um, I was thinking about the comments that Hugh Strawn made last time about how people overestimated Russian capability and that this was really a reflection of the reputation they won for themselves in the Second World War when they, they were really very good at winning battles. They got off to a shaky start. That was largely because Stalin had executed all the most capable officers in, in the 1937 purge. But the doctrine they'd invented for modern warfare, the deep battle concept that Hugh referenced, um, didn't die with them. And it was the basis for the great Red Army victories at Kursk, the Bagration operation of June 44, etc. And this was tremendously effective. And after the war, the US Army and the US Marine Corps lifted it wholesale and, and used it as the basis for their air, land, battle, operational doctrine. Now, this is, I'm rambling on a bit here, but the point is that Russia showed its capacity to recover from a, you know, what seemed to be a catastrophic situation. And I think that if we do believe that there are lessons to be learned from history, then we shouldn't rule out the possibility that they can do that again. Now, the next phase of this war, you know, it, it, it's a bit vague. We've been The Russians have been talking up a big spring offensive. Now, they've done this before. This falls into the category of maskirovka, which is a Russian word meaning disguise, which... The Russians have used in this campaign, they used it very effectively in the Second World War, which is to disguise their real intentions by saying one thing and doing another. So I, and it could well be, uh, in my analysis, that they, um, they're actually really preparing a deep defensive campaign, allowing the Ukrainians to come forward, enveloping them in a, in a classic deep operation and then counterattacking and, and pushing them back. So, you know, they've been building up their their defences ever since the autumn. So it could be the Ukrainians have a very, very difficult time ahead. What do you, what do you think about that, Saul? 
Yeah, it's a very interesting thought, Patrick. I think I think you're probably giving the Russians a bit more credit than they deserve to be to be <laughs> truthful. I mean, part of the issue here is to act on the defensive is very risky politically. You're you're not taking any ground. Meanwhile, you're giving the initiative to the enemy. We've discussed this before. Uh, and the big problem for Putin at the moment is credibility. I mean, given the advances that were made in the early stages of the war, it's been nothing but a reverse gear since then. And I think this lies behind their absolute determination to get some kind of propaganda victory at Bakhmut in the central Donbass. Um, a lot of Western analysts, ourselves included, have wondered what the strategic value is, but clearly it has a propaganda value. But the problem Russia's got with Bakhmut is that it's not really making any progress there. We've just had a recent British military intelligence assessment that says that despite a number of uh, increasingly desperate small-scale Russian attacks, and they've been going on since August, Russia's actually made virtually nil progress. And the reason this is a bit of a problem is because the group leading the attack there, so we're told, is the Wagner paramilitary group led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who, of course, otherwise known as Putin's chef, and a man who apparently has his own political aspirations. Well, there seems to be divisions now between Wagner and the Russian military. And these were brought into you know stark relief, I think, when claims were put out on Telegram, uh, the social media uh, communication site by two Wagner artillerymen accusing someone no less uh, senior than General Valery Gerasimov, the Russian army's chief of staff, of deliberately obstructing the delivery of artillery shells to let our guys die. Now, these soldiers went on to say that Russian attacks were getting nowhere and that assault groups were being cut to pieces. So, Yes, you know, in an ideal world, they would sit back. And you're right, the the whole idea of deep battle is as much about defence as it is about attack, Patrick. But, you know, I think these attacks at Bakhmut show how desperate they are for a propaganda victory, and they can't really afford to sit on the defensive. Yeah, I was just positing it as a, as a possibility. But as you say, they haven't showed any great strategic awareness up until this point. And the bigger question, of course, is can Putin afford a stalemate? As you rightly say, I think... So he can't afford just to sit back um, because the pressures at home are only going to build. And we see this the whole time, you know, coming as ever, not from uh, people trying to stop the war, but from people who want to escalate the war or at least make it more effective. We've had another intervention from Igor Girkin, uh, a.k.a. Strelkov. He calls him, so he's nom de guerre Strelkov, which means the shooter, which pretty much tells us where he's coming from. He's been very, very active in stirring up the Donbass. He played a big part in the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. And of course, he also was, by his own admission, morally responsible for the shooting down of that Indonesian airliner with uh, the loss of nearly 300 lives. Now, he's saying once again that the generals are useless and He's, you know, by extension, that's really a criticism of Putin. Now, interestingly, Putin, who once saw him as a kind of useful guy for stirring things up, uh, doesn't probably see him quite as benignly as that now and, and may regard, well regard him as a potential threat. Nonetheless, he doesn't seem to feel that it would be a good idea to move against him. Unlike some of the smaller fry, I was struck by a story Saul, I don't know if you noticed it, about another of these mysterious deaths. This one uh, was Pavel Antov, who was a sausage tycoon. He was a big meat processor, or ran a big meat processing factory, and was a loyal Putinista. He was a member of a pro-Putin party. But one day, perhaps overcome by one vodka too many, he posted uh, on social media a comment which appeared to condemn Russian missile attacks on civilian areas. I immediately retracted it the following day, saying, oh, someone got onto my uh, social media uh, and posted this without my knowledge. Uh, yeah, we all, that's what happened to all of us, hasn't it? Not. Um, anyway, a couple of days ago, he jumped from a hotel window while on holiday in India. And the the Indian police very helpfully said, oh, well, he was perhaps very depressed because his um, friend who he was on holiday with had died, also in mysterious circumstances, a couple of days before. Well, you know, we never get to the bottom of these stories, but it seems to me very much that this is a very vindictive uh, late strike by the FSB. So the stakes are getting higher all the time, aren't they, Saul? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's interesting you you mentioned the the Antonov story, Patrick, because uh, if you add the numbers up now, we've now got at least twenty former high profile industrialist tycoons who've died who have criticised the war and have died in mysterious circumstances. So, you know, as you're uh, suggesting, Patrick, put two and two together and you know and try and work out what that means. 
Um, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, your suggestion that there, there is a possible palace coup, because we had an extraordinary story this week um, from a former Putin speechwriter, Abbas Galiamov, who claims that Putin, just in case, and this plan may be needed sooner rather than later, it's codenamed Noah's Ark, and it's a plan for Putin's escape to South America in the event of him losing the war in Ukraine and things getting a little bit too hot in Russia. Sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? But actually, um, you know, why wouldn't you have a possible escape route? And of course, it reminds us, doesn't it, Patrick, of all those attempts by Nazis to flee um, at the end of the Second World War. Always a favourite destination for bad guys, isn't it, South America? <laughs> I wonder where the Mullers are going to go because I, I've just been I've been following with great interest and huge admiration of what's going on in Iran at the moment with these uh, demonstrations which show no sign of dying away despite uh, all the all the kind of brutal pushback that they're receiving from the uh, revolutionary guards and the Basij and all the other instruments of repression in Iran. Um, but there's very strong evidence that they're planning their own exit strategy uh, at a very basic level. All the kind of luxury villas in Tehran that the regime own are, are being flogged off at, at kind of bargain basement prices. So, you know, even very confident regimes like Iran can can think, OK, well, this could all go pear shape very quickly. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the lesson of history is, again, that... Uh, things can change very, very rapidly. You know, Russia being the classic example of that with the February Revolution in 1917, when suddenly, literally overnight, uh, there's this combination of striking workers, uh, women marching on the streets, demanding bread, and the, work, and the military just suddenly d- decide to switch sides and go with the flow. Uh, that literally took a couple of days, and six months later, you had the Bolsheviks in power. So... You know, there's plenty of lessons from history that, that things can go bad very quickly, even for very authoritarian regimes. Yeah. Now, another very interesting story, actually, Patrick, that relates to there's been a lot of criticism I've noticed on social media in the last a week or so, that although the West is continuing to arm Ukraine, it's not actually giving it its best weapons. Um, a lot of the stuff, as we've already reported on the on the podcast, are coming from sort of excess kit. Uh, and even the recent announcement from the Americans that they're going to be giving Patriot missiles. Well, they're already quite old, these Patriot missiles. Now, they are going to be very useful. Don't, don't get me wrong. But of course, there's a, you know, is, is there an understandable criticism that they're not getting the best stuff? Yes, there absolutely is. But really fascinating story, uh, has just come out, uh, reported in the Times that the Ukraine is making great play of the use of artificial intelligence. Now, this was software developed by a company called Palantir, a US tech firm that's closely linked to the CIA. You won't be surprised to hear. And it uses intelligence gathered by commercial satellites, heat sensors, and reconnaissance drones, as well as spies and Ukrainians working behind enemy lines, to produce a map with the probable location of Russian artillery tanks, troops, and supply depots. Now, it's as simple as this, Patrick. Once you've got the map up and running on your iPad, you just tap in the coordinates uh, where these targets are, and you can knock them out. Now, how effective is this? Well, former British Army General Sir Richard Barons says that 20 years ago, a military HQ would have had the capacity to target about 10 targets a day. Using this new AI software, that's increased to 300. I mean, it, this is considered to be a real game changer. It's something we haven't really discussed yet on the podcast, and we'll be looking to get more information about this. On the subject of the Patriots, uh, you know, we were quite encouraged by that, weren't we, last week? But it now emerges that it's going to take six months for them actually to be deployed operationally, which is not so good. My feeling is that, you know, this is going to be an issue later down the line, a political issue for the West, even though, yes, America really did step up and it did pour in a great deal of, of military support. But it hasn't been that targeted, has it, in the sense that they, they didn't get the best stuff that they, they really could have swung the war early on once things were going Ukraine's way uh, more forcefully in that direction. And, and it's been coming in, in, in sort of dribs and drabs in terms of the actual quality of the kit. Okay, there's been some some terrific stuff, high Mars. We've all been very um, impressed by what that, what that can do on the battlefield. But I think that the escalation we talked about last week, not actually sanctioning that earlier, may come to seem a big strategic mistake. And I think whichever way you look at it, it's going to cost a lot more in the long run, not giving them the really high quality game-changing kit early. Because 
uh, the, in terms of the destruction that's being done, you know, the, the cost of reconstruction. But also, uh, it just means you're going to have to pour more munitions in to get uh, the result that, that the West wants. It's a very tricky balance, isn't it, Patrick? We, we've been saying on the podcast for a long time, give them more and better stuff. There's no doubt who the villain in this scenario is and, and who uh, deserves to be supported. But I think, you know, if you kind of drill down into the kind of long-term politics and strategy of this, there may be a kind of fear among the West to not humiliate Russia, as we've discussed before, not to leave them as a kind of seething enemy for years to come, to sort of give Putin, or, or at least Russia, if not Putin, because I think you and I probably both are finding it hard to imagine the scenario where where Putin can lose the war, in inverted commas, and stay in power. But anyway, uh, a Russian regime, uh, not to get some extremist group to somehow uh, tread a middle way. I bet you that's in the back of a lot of uh, Western thinking through all of this, and is playing into the idea that they're not giving them the best kit so that they can finish the war quickly and in a humiliating fashion. Of course, they're using the argument about escalation, but we're hearing from increasing numbers of sources, including Hugh Strawn, that escalation really isn't a problem anymore. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it puts one in mind of the uh, Iraq scenario um, after the first Gulf War and the early 1990s, when the decision was made, okay, we don't, we want to leave Saddam in power. Um, that didn't go very well because we just had to come back 10 years later and, and bring down the regime. Um, you know, okay, we could very well argue about whether that was a good thing or not. But you've got the same sort of setup here, haven't you, really? The big fundamental question is, is it better for Russia to collapse in the hope that more amenable, a more democratic a regime more like us, a kind of Russia that, that shaped like us with our values emerges from that? Or is it better to follow a kind of containment policy, which was the idea behind the the decision not to go all the way uh, in the first Gulf War of, of 1993? It's a very, very tricky one. And, you know, whatever you do, you're probably going to uh, wish you'd done the, done the opposite. Anyway, well, that's enough from us for the time being. It's time to hear now from Mark McKinnon, star of the Canadian Globe and Mail Foreign Service, on his thoughts on where we're going. This is what he told us. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm trying to remember where we first met. When when, when and where was that? <laughs> long, long ago. It was in the... Uh... Boy, it was the first days after September the 11th, and my editors, for some reason, thought the Americans would be so rash as to invade a country called Iraq, uh, despite there being no direct tie to that conflict. And so I was a very young reporter. They were scrambling for people who were not locked down in North America. I happened to have been in South Africa at the time. So they put me on a plane to Amman, Jordan, where I was completely lost, had no idea what to do. And, and a very helpful and humble uh, Patrick Bishop sort of would agree to sit and, and eat shish talk with me every day and tell me who to call the next day. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. <laughs> well, you've certainly been in the right place at the right time since then, Mark, including being uh, in Ukraine when the war began. Can I start off by asking you how you see things, how things felt then and how you see things now? You've been there from the, from the beginning right up until this point. What are your reflections on where you were then and where you are now? I mean, those first days of the war were, um, they were terrifying. We all thought that the Russian army would have surrounded Kiev within days. This is what our contacts at Western embassies were telling us. They were leaving. They were telling us, Western journalists, to leave as soon as possible. And the first few days of the war, I was I was living in the, the Radisson Hotel in, in central Kiev and sort of running up and down the stairs to the bomb shelter. And, and you had no idea the size or scope of what was being hit in the city outside. All you knew is there was a siren sounding and everybody just sort of cowered in the basement until morning. And uh, then we were so convinced that the Russians were about to surround Kiev that about you know, sort of two days, three days into all this, um, some colleagues from the Guardian newspaper and I decided to, to redeploy outside of the city so that we could sort of cover this. We were thinking of like a siege of Sarajevo scenario where we were, you know, we'd be able to sort of sneak in and out of the city every day. So convinced was everyone of, of, of the imminent Russian victory that we moved to sort of a cottage on the outskirts of the city so we could try and cover this awful siege that was to come without being sort of trapped inside it. Anyway, when you think back to that and, and the assumptions we were working with and the belief that we had that the, the war would be a quick one and the, the outcome was certainly going to be in, in Vladimir Putin's favor to uh, my last visit, which, which concluded in early December, 
you know, where, where you're sort of in Kiev for a respite almost, and then you go redeploy to these front lines hundreds of kilometers to the east. And, you know, it, it's not comfortable, obviously, living in Kiev these days with the attacks that are happening on the infrastructure and the trying to keep your, your batteries charged up. But then the assumption now is that the front lines will keep moving east, which is a remarkable shift from, from where we were 10 months ago. Mark, you've written a fascinating piece for your paper, The Globe and Mail, uh, in Toronto about a number of Ukrainians. I think it's eight of them that you've been following since the beginning of the war. They've all had very different experiences. Some are in the military, some are sort of supporting the war in other guises. Can you tell us a little bit about just a few of them and how they've fared since the conflict began? Yeah, that was um, a project took us all year, obviously. And, and there were actually more than eight characters we've been following. Those were sort of the eight that made into a cogent uh, picture of, of how the year has gone. And it, it was just, you know, trying to make merit of the fact that I've been covering the country for a while. Some of these people were, you know, uh, one was a translator that I'd hired 20 years ago in my first trip to Ukraine that I just stayed in touch with. And, and she's sort of just an ordinary, you know, she's a mother trying to give her kid an ordinary life in the middle of a war. And so they get propelled from Kharkiv in the east of the country to Dnipro in the center. Now they're living in Kiev, but their home and their lives are back in Kharkiv and trying to keep their 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 son in sort of a, a normal situation to a political analyst that I've quoted repeatedly over the years because he's sort of happy to talk to media any hour of the day named Taras, um, spent the first few days of the war sort of like everyone else fleeing Kiev, not sure what the future was going to be, setting up a new life in the west of the country. And then, you know, as the, the course of the war turns, he sort of you know, remembers they went to military school and joins the army and, and ends up being assigned to a, a special forces unit that ends up helping liberate the Kharkiv region. And then most recently, he was on the front line as uh, Ukrainian troops entered Kherson, and he's from Crimea, and he's now beginning to think, well, maybe this war is going in the complete opposite direction. Maybe one day I'll get to go back to Crimea after all. And others, we, you know, was was a, a young woman who you know got married in the middle of the war, uh, there's a soldier I got to know who unfortunately was killed very early on in the conflict. Um, a couple of others, one lost his eye, one had shrapnel on his head. So it was, as a collective, I, I guess what these people told us is, is every one of them in those first hours and days was sort of on their back foot, not sure how long their country would, would continue to exist. And then gradually they sort of turned around and, and faced the enemy and like I said, some one one got killed, two are very badly injured, two lost their home. They've you know, sustained enormous damage, but they're still holding together. Uh, can we switch to uh, your thoughts about Russia, Mark? You've spent time there uh, as a uh, as the bureau chief in Moscow. From what your contacts, presumably you talk, talk to them still sometimes inside Russia, can you get any feel of uh, how Russian morale, Russian public opinion, if we can possibly gauge that, is holding up in these circumstances? I mean, it's always been very hard to gauge uh, broader uh, Russian public opinion because of the um, risks associated with, you know, polling there and, you know, people giving an honest answer to a stranger over the phone about their political beliefs. But at the start of the conflict, the, shall I say, this one day where right before the war began, I was calling sort of a couple of people who that I knew who had in the past worked inside the Kremlin trying to understand what they understood about what might lie ahead. And there were two conversations that really stuck out in my head. One was this, you know, sort of a, a long time Kremlin connected foreign policy advisor there who had been telling me, you know, this is all really just a bluff. You know, Putin's looking for, you know, concessions from, from NATO. He doesn't want to go to war here. He's just trying to see how far he can push it. And then got off the phone and called this other guy, more hawkish, always been more hawkish uh, line, at times marginalized within the Kremlin today, very central, it seems. And he was saying, no, we're going to go and get rid of the Nazis in Kiev, et cetera, et cetera. And I hung up the phone and I turned to my Ukrainian colleague and I said, you know, it depends who's in charge right now. It depends which Kremlin we're dealing with. If it's that last guy, we're in for a very long and, and dangerous conflict because, you know, the, the world he's talking about, there's no room for peace. There's no room for negotiations. It you know, implies there are Nazis in Kiev and NATO is going to build, install nuclear weapons on the border. And, you know, as poorly as the war has gone for the Russian military, if you watch Russian state television right now, this is still the overriding narrative that, you know, there is this, this quote unquote fascist regime next door that the West is, you know, pumping up with weapons because it intends to destroy Russia. And that 
you know, whether or not people believe it or not is almost beside the point because that's the narrative and it's very hard for the Kremlin to back down from that narrative to suddenly say, oh, look, we've made a, we've made a deal with these guys. Uh, we're all going to go back to the way it was before. It, it is sort of being presented inside Russia as an existen- existential struggle. And if so, then as, and Ukrainians, of course, now do see this post-Bucha, post-Izum as an existential struggle. They, they have a very clear reason for believing that. It's very hard to see where the de-escalation ramps are in the near future. Uh, Talking about your own continent, North America, uh, I've been struck in recent days by the way uh, that the right, uh, the commentariat on the right, which of course is very influential, is starting to uh, undermine American solidarity for the war or attempting to undermine American solidarity behind the war effort. Uh, do, Do you see that as being a dangerous development? Of course. And, and it's, you know, it's deeply confusing how the party of Ronald Reagan has ended up um, in this place where many of them openly admire Vladimir Putin and, you know, see logic in his reasons for invading Ukraine just because it fits with their worldview about a very confusing worldview that, that, you know, about who runs the world, I guess. And it does, I mean, we got through the American midterms and there was not this this feared red wave that, you know, I, when I say fear to say, I was in Kiev at the time and, and the Ukrainians were quite concerned that if, you know, the American military and political support started to wane, if there started to be more pressure from Washington to um, accept what what Russia would call peace, which the Ukrainians would see as, as you know, annexations and, and giving up land and setting the stage for another conflict. You know, they were worried that if the American solidarity cracked, then European solidarity, which has always been more questionable, would, would, would quickly fracture. So we got through that for now. Um, there's another, of course, the American presidential election looms large. And I mean, this narrative, I, I'm Canadian. I haven't lived there for, for a while now, and I don't follow American politics too. But when you go home to, Can- when I go home to Canada and I'm traveling around, um, especially in parts of the country that, that more traditionally vote conservative. Again, it's rather confusing. That there is a, an understanding that, well, maybe Putin's just trying to put things back in order, as though he's somehow become representative of something else besides a dictator invading his neighbor. He's, he's somehow aligned with, because of his uh, sort of support for traditional, quote-unquote, Christian values, etc. He's got support in, in the sort of North American political right for baffling reasons. Mark, we have a similar situation in the UK, as I'm sure you're aware, as your resident here. Um, not only the hard right, but also the hard left seem to be quite sympathetic towards Putin. It must be completely mystifying to anyone <laughs> coming to the UK for the first time to see that. Um, but broader picture here, I mean, the, the recent visit of Zelensky to uh, the United States, Biden's firm commitment uh, for more money for Ukraine. Is this being seen in Ukraine as a victory of sorts and a uh, a conviction at least that the West or NATO more generally is going to be supportive of the war, at least in the short to medium term? I think so. I mean, I, there, there was a moment of nervousness. I, and I, you know, I'm not inside the Ukrainian presidential administration. But I do recall back in November, there being some worried text messages that, that I was being sent by my sources there about sort of a, an overall sense that the West was drifting towards a, you know, as winter loomed and gas supplies were in question and the war seemed stagnant this before the fall of Kherson, you know, there was this sense that the West, we need to look for an off-ramp. Like, okay, we've made our point. Let's give Vladimir Putin sort of a, a, a gentle way out of this and we can all sort of return to something like business as, as usual before we have a hard winter with uh, people in Europe shivering in their homes and thinking about voting for somebody else. And so that was right before, again, you know, the sequence of events is this nervousness is rising. The Ukrainian military, uh, you know, frankly, was looking for a win that would convince the, the West that it could continue to take back land, that this was not a, a frozen conflict yet. Hedison happened in, in, because of a Russian strategic withdrawal, frankly, but because of a long-term Ukrainian plan of, you know, using their uh, Western-donated long-range weapons to strike it you know, make it untenable for, for the Russians to stay there. It happened at a very fortuitous time, just as sort of Ukrainians were beginning to wonder, you know, are we going to be forced to make another Minsk? Uh, the Minsk agreements where this deal that was back in 2014 was sort of imposed on Ukraine by Russia to end the the hot phase of the conflict that pre- preceded this one. They were worried to be, you know, forced into another Minsk-like agreement. And then Kherson falls and... All of a sudden, there's, you know, Ukraine's back on on leading newscasts at night. And um, I think capitalizing on that momentum, 
Mr. Zelensky decides to make his first trip outside of Ukraine since February, since the start of the war. And obviously he chose the United States. He chose Joe Biden to say thank you because that's been their their biggest ally, both in terms of military support, but also in terms of, of leading Europe forward on this because Europe has been a bit more reticent. So yeah, it was a big deal uh, for the Ukrainians. They do feel like right now they do have the support of the West. They can continue to try and liberate more and more of their territory inside Russia. Of course, it fit the narrative that we're not really fighting against the Ukrainians. We're fighting against NATO and, and you know, the, the hawks are pushing for for the Russian military to, to, to fight that kind of conflict, to sort of strike at, um, if not NATO countries, then NATO supplies as they cross the border. So there is some, obviously, some escalation risk in this as well. Well, that was great stuff. We're just going to take a quick break now. Please join us for part two when we'll be hearing more from Mark McKinnon. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta, because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Welcome back. Well, as well as the situation on the ground, we were interested in the broader global developments arising from the conflict, which Mark is well qualified to comment on. He spent several years based in Beijing. This is what he said. Mark, you're a man of many parts. You've also been Beijing bureau chief for your newspaper. Can you say a little bit about the Chinese role in all this and uh, their perspective on, on what's going on? I mean, the Chinese role at the start of this was, I think they were, most reporting suggests that um, in the run-up to the Olympics, Vladimir Putin being the only foreign leader who attended the Beijing Olympics, briefed Xi Jinping about what was to come. Xi Jinping, we're told, uh, asked Vladimir Putin to wait till the end of the Olympics before attacking Ukraine. And there was a lot of fear at that time that as Russia invaded Ukraine, as, you know, sort of the West rallied or responded or didn't respond to that conflict, that would be a great time for China to sort of test the waters around trying to retake Taiwan, for instance. And I think the Russian military failures in Ukraine have surprised China. They have, there was that, that meeting halfway through the year where Xi Jinping, he didn't say anything himself, but Putin said uh, in a side-by-side press conference that, you know, the Chinese leader had questions about the war and I tried to answer them, you know, suggesting that, that China didn't expect it to take this long or for it to go the way it has. And maybe that's changed China's own calculus. Certainly the way the West has supported Ukraine has, and the clearer lines that Joe Biden has drawn around Taiwan probably have changed China's thinking towards what it can do with regards to Taiwan. It hasn't changed its rhetoric, of course, but I think you know we're further away from a Chinese move on Taiwan than we might have been back in February. At the same time, we haven't seen yet, much has been made of the fact that Russia is running low on munitions from, you know, it's firing hundreds of shells a day at Ukraine. It's using up its uh, store of uh, cruise missiles. Now it's turned to these Iranian drones. Apparently it's sought and purchased North Korean artillery shells. There is a giant arms manufacturer with a, shares a border with Russia. And should it decide to throw its industrial military complex behind the Russian war effort, that could allow Vladimir Putin to not just carry this war on indefinitely, but to escalate the number of attacks, attacks per day it does. And so we haven't really seen China's play yet. We haven't seen it say, 
you know, condemn Putin and, and stand against this war in a, in a strong way, but he also hasn't thrown China's industrial might behind Russia in a way that it would be profitable for China, but also would aid the Russian war effort. So I think China is still watching and waiting as it traditionally does in foreign policy issues and, and could yet become a bigger player. Mark, we've been speculating about the sort of motives for all the nuclear saber rattling uh, since the early stages of the war. Uh, and we also feel that China's stance over this, um, which is that, you know, this mustn't get into a position where even tactical nuclear weapons are used on the battlefield has influenced Russia. Do you think that is the case? I do. Uh, it has to have. If you look at it from a purely military perspective and the fact that the input of the other nuclear powers, Britain, France, the United States, those are the main ones, obviously, it, the, the fact that you know, what they have to say at this point probably doesn't influence Vladimir Putin very much. And you look at the front lines and you think, boy, you know, if Putin loses this war, his regime might be over. He's reputed to have watched the video of how Muammar Gaddafi was killed dozens of times. And, and, and you know, he, that, that's his nightmare, right, as, as the people take to the streets to overthrow the regime. And then he ends up in a ditch like Gaddafi did. You know, I have several times, you know, just working with our local staff there, we've gamed out you know, what we would do if, and there's not much you can do if uh, a nuclear attack is comes into play. But it does seem, especially given the Kremlin has been proven to have used chemical and nuclear devices in, in Syria, in, in assassination attempts, you know, it certainly wouldn't be a red line for Vladimir Putin. So someone's drawn a, a red line for him, whether that's, you know, his staff saying they refuse to, to push the button, which I highly doubt, or the Chinese have said, listen, you know, we're we're your friend and this is our request, as they've done in the past. It seems the most plausible reason for why we haven't seen the sort of tactical nuclear weapon, you know, which would have limited battlefield effects, but it would certainly demoralize the Ukrainian military and population and, and hasten the conversation that, that Mr. Putin wants, which is sort of this summit with the West about how to end the war. Um, so, yeah, there's somebody there's something holding him back, thankfully, that m most likely is Xi Jinping. Fascinating. Uh, last question from me, Mark. How do you see things going in the coming year? Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sitting here with a giant uh, Starlink Elon Musk sort of satellite uh, modem device that I'm going to lug back into Kiev with me. We've just bought three massive batteries and trying to secure a generator for our apartment in Kiev. We're battening down the hatches for a long conflict, at least another year. The front lines may not change as much as they have in the near future. You know, there was a moment there where it felt like the Ukrainians were going to drive all the way to Crimea and to Donetsk. And we now see the Russians building fortification lines to prevent that from happening. And we do have this, you know, this ongoing Russian mobilization. And we're allegedly hundreds of thousands of troops are in Belarus for training, which if nothing else, forces the Ukrainians to defend the northern border. So, you know, I, I guess another year of war is what I would predict at this point. Uh, inconclusive war, you know, I think we'd all be thrilled if it ended before then, if it, if Ukraine got its territory back before then. I don't see how that happens under current conditions. Um, if we're still discussing this, you know, will, will he or won't he nuclear question in a year's time, that will be a victory as well. Yeah, last question from me, Mark. One of the key things uh, I think both Patrick and I feel about this is the stage at which the Ukrainians get that they feel that they have any kind of negotiations for peace. They're, they are, of course, playing a very hard uh, line at the moment. They've, they've had success on the battlefield and they're really talking about the recovery of all their territory. But what do you feel on the ground is the absolute minimum that they could accept for any kind of peace deal in the future? This is a really important question. And, and, I, and yeah, the rhetoric is clear from the president's office and down through all those who speak for Ukrainian security structures that, you know, we are going to regain our land. This is, you know, uh, the only way this war ends and we'll, we won't negotiate with Vladimir Putin. We'll negotiate with the next Russian president. You know, that, of course, that's not how peace gets made. I think a, a Ukrainian attack south from Zaporizhia to split the Russian holdings in two would give them more bargaining power than they currently have. You know, I think a push towards Donbass is would be very difficult, but, you know, is politically possible. When you get towards Crimea, then I think we are advancing towards Vladimir Putin's real red lines. That's his his legacy. That's the one thing that he wanted to go down in the history books for is returning, quote unquote, Crimea to Russia. And I think that's where he might go to Xi Jinping and say, this is, you know, actual Russian territory is similar to any part of China. And what would you do? You know, if I was a um, Western ambassador in 
Ukraine, I'd be advising them to treat Crimea with caution because of that. What the trick for Vladimir Zelensky or any Ukrainian leader right now is that all these military political realities come up against what we talked about at the start, the Ukrainian nationalism, the, the belief that they're going to win this war, and the fact that most Ukrainians, after having eight years of proxy war in Donbass, 14,000 people were killed before this conflict even started, after seeing Bucha, after seeing Izum, after watching the celebrations in Liberated Hevson, they're not in the mood for a deal. They actually would refuse a deal, the majority of Ukrainians that I know, for certainly. And that has a risk for Zelensky. If he says tomorrow morning, listen, I've made a deal to end the war, and it involves Russia keeping Crimea, Luhansk, and Donetsk, I think there would be massive street protests against that Ukrainian leader. And I don't know that he would survive that politically. So, or that any Ukrainian politician would survive that politically. So there is a, there is a real, there's another player in this, and that's the Ukrainian population that thinks it can, its military can win this war and that they don't need to make concessions, that they don't need to make concessions and they don't, and they should not, it would be morally reprehensible to make concessions. And it's hard to argue with that. I mean, I've you know, had these conversations repeatedly. And that's, again, why I predict just more and more war in the year to come, because it's just not a popular mood on the Ukrainian side. And there's no rhetorical groundwork on the Russian side for anything like peace. Well, that was great stuff. Uh, I just want to say something about the genesis of the interview. I met up with Mark last week at the Frontline Club, a great institution that Saul and I both know all too well, don't we, Saul? It's in an old iron foundry, kind of 19th century, late 19th century iron foundry in Paddington. And it was set up by a friend of ours, Vaughan Smith, a former Grenadier guardsman turned combat cameraman about 20 years ago. And it's basically for, it's clear on teleforum correspondence, people working in foreign news, but also aid workers, diplomats and military types, etc. It's a great institution, but it's not one of my wife's favorite places. She refers to the club habitués as members of the When I Was tribe, because she says that every conversation starts with when I was in Afghanistan, when I was in Bosnia, when I was in Iraq, etc., etc. Most unfair, I think, so, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've often been surprised that I was allowed in, and this was about 20 years ago, not really coming under any of those groups you mentioned, Patrick, but I suppose uh, military historian possibly as a kind of you know vague add-on to all the rest, but great stuff. Um, I mean, crikey, it was fascinating, wasn't it, to hear from Mark, because he has, as you pointed out at the beginning, Patrick, that those areas of expertise, not only reporting on the ground in Ukraine, but also his knowledge of Moscow and China, too, you know, having served as bureau chief in the capital of both those countries. Uh, and, you know, the most interesting thing, or at least the most striking thing he said to me was really about China, uh, how it began, you know, he confirmed, which is something we'd long suspected that it began the war, you know, really supporting Russia, knew about the attack in advance, probably thinking it would give it a free pass in Taiwan. But as Mark says, the failures then have not only surprised China, but it's made the recovery of Taiwan less likely in the short term. And yet, of course, there and yet the danger at some stage, as Mark points out, is that China will decide to come into the game supporting Russia militarily, and this could really tip the balance. Yes, that was um, quite a sobering thought, wasn't it? I was also you know, rather kind of cast down by his assessment that the war is going to last, last at least another year with little chance of the peace moves that were kind of in the air, uh, we were talking about at the beginning of, of the show, uh, actually coming to anything. I think we probably agree on that. But uh, he seemed to be less sanguine at the thought of a, a Russian collapse than, than we've been uh, from time to time. Also, the, the point he makes that you know Zelensky has made life quite difficult for himself going forward in terms of any... Uh, negotiating headroom because he has repeated over and over again that there we can be no peace without the expulsion of the Russians from every centimeter, as he said, of of um, Ukraine's national boundaries. And that message has gone down so well that, in Mark's assessment, it's um, it, it's basically supported that that view that stance is supported by the vast majority of the population. But on the other side, he says the Crimea really is a red line for the Russians. And the narrative that's being spun from the Kremlin, that this is a kind of battle for national survival, will become a reality in 
in Russian minds if Crimea is attacked. Yeah, it's all very sobering stuff, isn't it? Um, but, you know, I think in many ways, we won't know where exactly how things are going to pan out, of course, more, more than anyone else does. But I think there are little indications there that despite the success the Ukrainians are having on the battlefield, uh, this doesn't necessarily make peace any closer to, you know, grab hold of, so to speak, and that we could be in it for, you know, a fair while longer yet. Okay, well, let's move on to some questions. Now, quite a few of them are about procurement and supply. So we're not going to uh, answer them all individually, but just to give a kind of general sense of, of some of the questions. Here's one from Bart Dulard from the Netherlands. Uh, he says, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you for putting all your efforts into providing high quality content. And his question regards the Western weapons support Ukraine gets. The longer the war progresses, uh, says Bart, the more advanced and expensive the weaponry Ukraine receives. What factors do you reckon are in play when deciding which weapons are allowed and which weapons are not? For example, lately, the use of Patriot systems is allowed, but MiGs from Poland are, are still not. Well, I think don't think there's any big secret here, Bart. I mean, what's going on here is that, yes, they are uh, providing weaponry, but they're still sticking to this kind of broad line that they're going to give weapons that are chiefly of use for defense, as in the Patriot uh, anti-air, anti-missile systems, uh, rather than offensive weapons. They still seem to be playing that basic card. There was some suggestion recently, I noticed from some news outlets, that right at the beginning of the war, Ukraine had wanted Warthog tank busters, the A-10s, which, Patrick, you probably remember from the Gulf War, very effective system, quite difficult to fly, apparently. Um, but those haven't been given to Ukraine. And you could argue that, you know, there's an element of a defensive capability there. But yes, they've been very cautious about what they give them. Uh, and we don't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Um, following up on that, we've got one here from Simonas, uh, who lives in Belgium, who says, uh, hi, guys, good podcast, a bit Anglo-Saxon centric, but still good. Uh, I think there's, we've, we've been accused of being a bit um, heavy on, on the male contributors. Uh, but Anglo, I mean, these are kind of the inevitable consequences of, of a kind of lopsided information uh, mm-hmm. scenario we're in, which he actually makes this point later on. But first of all, he's, he reiterates this business of, of uh, attacks on uh, Russian targets inside Russian borders. He says, if Russia is attacking Ukraine's energy infrastructure, would it be fair to give Ukraine weapons to attack the nearby Russian power plants as well? Well, there's been a bit of that, hasn't there? Uh, these ongoing sort of mysterious, uh, often drone, appear to be drone raids on energy targets, etc. Would it be an effective deterrent? I don't think it's a deterrent, really. And I, th- I think it's there are dangers in that. One is that you actually get into a sort of moral equivalent situation. There's a lot of mm-hmm. voices on the right in America, particularly you know during Zelensky's visit. You've got these sort of right wing rabble rousers like uh, Tucker Carlson, you know, kind of basically insulting Zelensky and saying, why are we pouring all this money into Ukraine? So I think if if they start kind of following the Russian lead, then that will only uh, damage the you know very lofty moral standing they've got at the moment in the eyes of most people, ordinary people in the West. So yeah. Now, his final point, I think, um, is, is definitely one worth making, or answering at least, he says, this is a cheeky one. How much better would your podcast be if you were to interview some local Russian military experts, not only emigres? Well, it's a thought, but I think we kind of know what they think and say from you know, these are the kind of uh, the sort of mill bloggers, uh, these kind of guys, a bit like um, Strelkov, you know, who are ultra-nationalists, uh, ultra-militarists, and their kind of outlook is that we just want to do what we're doing better and harder. Uh, so there's not much kind of nuance in that. The other difficulty is that you know if you're dealing with a, an authoritarian regime, it's very hard to get anyone who's actually going to give you a, a kind of nuanced, believable, credible view from inside Russian territory. So that we are actually forced to, to talk to emigres who uh, per force are going to be anti-Putin. Yeah, not ideal, but um, I think it's the best you can hope for. And, you know, as you say, Patrick, if we start talking to genuine insiders, if they'd agreed to talk to us, we'd just be uh, repeating their propaganda, albeit with a, you know, with a cautionary warning, uh, which is something we're, we're not in the business of doing. 
Okay, let's move on to Peter Richards from Brisbane, Australia. It's nice to see the podcast, as we've said before, getting such uh, global reach. Um, Thanks for a terrific podcast, he writes. Can you tell me when Congress allocates billions for Ukraine? What does that mean? Are the funds given to Ukraine to spend as it wishes? Can they buy military hardware from any sources? Or is it tied to spending on US military equipment? Well, it is a good question, actually, because um, I think I know the answer. And I think the answer basically is the latter. Uh, they're giving kit, which is worth a certain amount. And those are the sums they're adding up. OK, we've got a final one here from Chris Robolevsky, who asks about whether NATO should really be uh, worried by the Russian threat, given uh, the performance that we've seen on the battlefield to date, i.e. You know, basic military incompetence, uh, further undermined by um, you know massive corruption. This is something we ought to discuss at a, at a future pod or And he asked the question, should NATO members really be that worried, given all that's now known about Russia's military shortcomings? Do you think they pose any kind of threat to NATO at the moment, Saul? The answer is no. Um, And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because a a year ago, I wouldn't have said that. And I'm sure you wouldn't have either, Patrick. But, you know, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, what we realise now, as you've hinted at or suggested, Patrick, is the enormous amount of um, corruption there was. This information is is coming from very reliable Russian sources, by the way. Uh, And of course, it does explain a lot of the inadequate kit and the the sort of chaos in supply, because all of the, you know, for an army to operate well, all the different elements of it have to function effectively. So should current NATO members be concerned? Absolutely not, because it would mean that uh, one was attacked or or were attacked. I think the places that still should be a little concerned are places that are not yet currently NATO members uh, next to Russia. Uh, I'm talking, of course, places like Sweden. And yes, it, it makes complete sense to me that they get into NATO sooner rather than later to give them that extra security. But but frankly, given uh, what the Russia has done in Ukraine, it, it does make you wonder to what extent they can be a reliable partner for someone like China in the future. You know, going back to some of Mark's thoughts about China, they must really be wondering what they've got themselves shackled to. Yeah, I mean, I think from China's point of view, the only real advantage uh, is that they've got access to these, you know, vast uh, supplies of energy, which in the short term uh, will, of course, be of, of some benefit. But in the long term, like you say, do you really want to be allied to Russia in its current state? Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. But before we go, a couple of things. We don't often blow our own trumpet, but we've been getting some very nice accolades recently that we thought it would be good to pass on. The Times listed us last week as one of the top 25 podcasts in the UK in all categories for the year, which was very nice of them. And we're building our audience all the time. We were number three in Apple History Podcasts last week. So do keep listening. Yes, please do. Next week, uh, we're not having a break for Christmas and New Year. We'll have another fabulous guest and we'll be summing up the latest news uh, from Ukraine and elsewhere. Do join us then. 